Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 117, Son of God, 1, Dr. Lee Irons' Trinitarian View of Jesus. This episode is the first of three in which I have the privilege of talking to the three authors of the new book called The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus. Those three views are called Trinitarian, Arian, and Socinian. But before we get to today's conversation, I wanted to thank a listener named Bert for some good feedback on the previous episode. Bert pointed me to a video. This is put out by a group called Jews for Judaism, which is a group that argues back against uh, the arguments of Christian missionaries as they try to persuade Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. They're always arguing back, no, he isn't. I'll link this video on the blog post for this episode. But the salient point is that some Jews today argue that Isaiah 9-6, which is actually 9-5 in their translations, should be rendered as follows. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, and the authority is upon his shoulder, and the wondrous advisor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, called his name the Prince of Peace. That's the translation I was reading from the Chabad.org website. Their argument is that this translation is grammatically possible given the Hebrew text. Is that true? I have no idea. I do not know any Hebrew, sadly. My guess is that it's grammatically possible, but it's not at all the best translation. I'm not able to find any Christian source translating it this way, and usually when there's a disputed thing between Christians and Jews, you will find some Christian source willing to concede the other way to look at it. When I look at a modern English rendering of the ancient Jewish translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, that translation of the Septuagint says, Because a child was born for us, a son also given to us, whose sovereignty is upon his shoulder, and he is named Messenger of Great Counsel, for I will bring peace upon the rulers, peace and health to him. So apparently the text is a little different there, but I don't see any support for the version that was argued for. When I look at the recent Jewish Study Bible, which is a new translation from the Jewish Publication Society, they have this. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given us, an authority has settled on his shoulders. He has been named, the mighty God is planning grace, the eternal father, a peaceable ruler. So even while this version in the footnote argues against a traditional Christian reading, it doesn't support the suggestion either. So, again, I don't know any Hebrew, but I have to wonder if this is a Jewish reaction against Christian arguments. That this translation, even if it's grammatically possible, is kind of a stretch, and that's why practically no versions opt for it. And when I look at the 1917 Jewish Publication Society translation, I find something very strange at Isaiah 9.5. It says, For a child is born unto us, son is given unto us, and the government is upon his shoulder, and his name is called... And then it just transliterates the Hebrew. It actually refuses to translate. And that too suggests to me that they are sensitive to Christian arguments, and so they don't want to give any fuel for the Christian fire, and uh, they just hold back even translating it. 
But in any case, I note that neither of these translations takes the suggested route. Neither of them takes this other translation, which avoids calling this son which is born everlasting father, mighty God, wonderful counselor. So my conclusion is that this other translation is only theologically motivated and is not to be preferred. Anyway, Bert, thanks for the very helpful comment. Let's move on then to today's interview. Dr. Charles Lee Irons holds a BA in Greek from UCLA, an MDiv in Biblical Studies from Westminster Seminary, California, and a PhD in New Testament from Fuller Theological Seminary. He's a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church in America, but his day job is Senior Research Administrator for Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science in Los Angeles, California. He's also an active scholar of biblical studies with a focus on the New Testament and is the author of more than a dozen scholarly articles and book chapters. He has one published book called The Righteousness of God, A Lexical Examination of the Covenant Faithfulness Interpretation, and he has another book forthcoming, A Syntax Guide for Readers of the Greek New Testament. But he's here with us today to talk about his contribution to the book, The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus. Dr. Irons sets out and defends a Trinitarian view on which Jesus is both fully divine and human against his Arian and Socinian co-authors. Dr. Irons, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you for having me. Dr. Irons, where did the idea come from to have a three-views book with these three views? Well, it began with my friend Danny Dixon, one of the contributors to the book. Uh, He and I go way back. We met back in 1987 when I was a sophomore at UCLA. And at the time, he was not involved with a strict monotheism or biblical Unitarianism movement or view. But uh, we met and we struck up a friendship based on our common interest in the Greek New Testament. Later on, as he did begin to shift in his thinking through reading the work of Anthony Buzzard, the Trinity, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wound, he began to discuss those issues with me. He sent me a copy of the book to read. And as time progressed, he also began to change his own thinking on that from, I think that it's fair to say that the position of Anthony Buzzard in that book would be identified as a Socinian position. At first, Danny held to that view, and then he later shifted towards a more Arian view, where he acknowledges the preexistence of Jesus, but not eternal preexistence. And so we began discussing, and he really wanted to have a discussion with me on these issues. And he was the one that approached me with the idea and suggested that he would represent the Arian view, I would represent the Trinitarian view, and that we look for a Socinian who could defend that position. So he looked around, found someone who was willing, came across the work of uh, Dr. Dustin Smith, and uh, he agreed to participate. So it was really my friend Danny's uh, idea he kind of brought us all together, and I was happy to, to contribute to a healthy, respectful dialogue based upon our authority being the scriptures, not tradition or philosophy, but using the scriptures as our ultimate authority to try to understand what does the Bible teach about the identity of Jesus? Is he the eternal son of God, as I would hold, or is he a preexistent being who didn't exist eternally, but has some kind of divine qualities, although not eternally divine? Uh, the Aryan view of Danny, or is he a human being who began existence in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Socinian view represented by Dustin Smith? 
Dr. Irons, as I read your chapter, it struck me that you don't at all stick to the claim that Jesus is God, as I see many evangelical apologists doing nowadays. Why not just say Jesus is God, meaning that Jesus and God are one and the same? Yeah, that's a good question. I've noticed that a lot of evangelical apologists do that, and they appeal to the six or seven verses in the New Testament, John 1, 1 being the most famous. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, and there are five or six others as well. And they, they tend to use that as their primary basis for defending the deity of Christ. I do not deny that those passages teach the deity of Christ, although there's one that I have questions about. Romans 9, 5 is debated. I'm not sure that's a very good proof text. But the other ones, John 1, 1, John 20, 28, Hebrews 1, 8, 1 John 5, 20, Titus 2, 13, 2 Peter 1, 1. I do think that they use the word God in reference to Jesus. However, I, I'm not sure that using those verses is the best way of getting at this issue, especially in the context of a dialogue between myself as a Trinitarian and two representatives of a more Unitarian view, whether Socinian or Arian, because from their point of view, from the Unitarian point of view, saying that Jesus is God doesn't prove anything. I mean, after all, the angels in the Old Testament are called gods, Elohim, in a couple of passages. Even Moses is called God. So just saying Jesus is God doesn't necessarily prove definitively that Jesus is ontologically divine in the full creedal sense of Nicaea, that he's of the same substance with the Father. So I don't use that as my main argument for defending the deity of Christ, although, like I said, I do think that those verses do support the deity of Christ. Another problem, too, with saying that that statement, Jesus is God, or that Jesus and God are one and the same, is that it's a misleading statement because it could be taken in a modalistic sense. Modalism, it was a, a heresy, considered to be a heresy in the early church, that God and Jesus are, are indeed one and the same and that there is no personal distinction between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. These are just different modes of existence of one God. Sometimes it was called patripassianism because that Latin phrase means the Father suffers. So it would be saying that the Father himself is the one that died upon the cross and suffered for our sins. So there's a danger in just saying Jesus is God. I think that's a true statement, but it has to be understood and nuanced and carefully explained. Just saying that statement by itself is, is misleading. So I refrain from that. I, I tend to take the tack that in my main presentation, I focused on the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. To me, that statement is very biblical, very clear. It's found throughout the New Testament dozens and dozens of times in all the Gospels and Paul and so on. That statement, Jesus is the Son of God, has a, an advantage to it because it allows you to capture that nuance properly. On the one hand, he's distinct from God the Father because he's the Son. He's not the Father. But on the other hand, since he's the Son of God, he has the exact nature that the Father has. That's what sonship means. He is what the Father is in terms of his essential essence and being. So it allows you then to capture both sides of this important balance where you have the affirmation of the deity of the Son, but also recognizing that he is distinct personally from the Father. 
So when people say Jesus is God, I, I think a lot of them, at least in the back of their mind, are assuming that that's kind of a decent summary of Trinitarian tradition. And I guess you're saying, no, I don't think it is. The tradition is that Jesus and the Father are one usia, one nature, one essence, but different persons. And so it's better to say he's son of God because then son's not the father, but then if he's a real son, then he must also be divine. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's right. I don't think that the tradition would deny that statement and say it's wrong to say Jesus is God, but I think the tradition would be hesitant about that statement, just as the New Testament itself is hesitant. The New Testament itself only uses that predication, applying the term theos, God, to Jesus six or seven times, whereas it, dozens and dozens of times it speaks of Jesus as the Son of God. So that seems to be more in line with the usage of Scripture. And if it was understood to mean that Jesus and God are the same self, then you would say, no, that's, that's not the tradition. That's, that's against the tradition. Correct. That would be against the tradition. That would be modalism. Another argument I see a lot, but I don't see you relying on it, although I think you mentioned it, was that since Jesus is properly worshipped, therefore Jesus is God. Why is it that you don't emphasize or rely on that argument from worship to deity? Well, I did use the argument and I did rely on it, but I was cautious about it and I didn't want to make that my primary argument because I wasn't sure how my interlocutors were going to respond to it. For, for that argument to make sense, there's an unstated premise there. And the unstated premise is that only God may be worshipped. So if, if the argument is that Jesus is worshipped, only God may be worshipped, therefore Jesus is God or Jesus is divine. I wasn't sure how my interlocutors were going to argue the, that unstated premise. And it turns out that they deny it. They don't think it's true that only God may be worshipped. They think that it's possible for God to grant creatures, whether they're angels or humans, to grant them the status of being an agent of God. So they use this concept of the agency argument. Mm-hmm. In the Talmud, it's called the Shaliak. The Shaliak is someone who is sent to represent another. And so when a Shaliak is appointed to represent someone else, he has all of the authority and power of the person he represents. My interlocutors, uh, Dr. Smith and uh, Mr. Dixon, they turns out I was right to be cautious to use that argument because they didn't agree with that premise. I think the premise is, is sound but I didn't want to rest my case on that because I was not sure where they were going to go with that. Dr. Irons, in your chapter on responses to the others, you repeatedly appeal to the creator-creature distinction, and you argue that in the New Testament, Jesus is clearly on the creator side of that line. In your view, how many beings are on the creator side of the line? Well, it depends on what you mean by beings, but of course I would say there's only one being, God. But within the one being of God, I would argue, according to the tradition, traditional Trinitarianism, that there are three persons 
within that one being. But yeah, you're right. I, I did make a big uh, emphasis on the creator-creature distinction because to me that is the strongest argument for the deity of Christ. These other arguments, you know, the six or seven verses that say Jesus is God or the argument that Jesus is worshipped, therefore he is God, those are good arguments and, and they have some weight. But in terms of this particular debate with these particular interlocutors, I felt that this is the key point the creator-creature distinction. There is no way that a creature can be a creator. That's definitionally impossible. And this was actually the, the main argument that Athanasius used in the fourth century in his arguments with the Arians is that in the New Testament, there are four passages that affirm that Jesus is the mediator of creation, that God created all things through Christ. There's John 1, 3, which is the clearest one, the strongest one. It says that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. There's also uh, later on in that same passage, verse 10, that it says he was in the world and the world was made through him. There's 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. There's also Colossians 1.16 and Hebrews 1.2. And so I use those, those passages as my what I think is the strongest argument to say that if there is this, if we accept this distinction between the creator and the creature, an uncrossable ontological distinction, a creator and a creature are just absolutely distinct things. The creator is independent of creation. The creator is the source of creation. The creator pre-exists creation. Then if we accept that and we see the New Testament affirming that God created all things, through his son, then that places the son on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. And that to me is the strongest evidence uh, from a New Testament point of view that Jesus is divine. Since he belongs on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction, he is fully divine. He pre-exists eternally, the creation. He's not dependent upon the creation. He's not a creature. Athanasius asked that question to the Arians. He said, if he's a creature, then how is it that the New Testament says that he's the creator? So that's what I rested my main argument on. And interestingly, the response that I got from the other two was surprisingly weak, in my opinion. Dr. Smith, he didn't really interact with it very much because he doesn't even believe in the preexistence of Jesus anyway. So his whole emphasis in his presentation was just trying to show that he, he began to exist in the womb of the Virgin Mary and didn't exist before that. So he didn't really interact very clearly or strongly with my argument because he just presuppositionally doesn't believe in preexistence at all. Mr. Dixon, on the other hand, he does believe in preexistence and he actually affirms that God created all things through this being who is a creature He's the son. He's the first creature that God made. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's a divine creature in a sense, which to me, that's an oxymoron. But he thinks he's a divine creature who existed not eternally, but he did exist before he was born of the virgin and that God used him to create all other things. He says that the word other, even though it's not stated in these passages in John 1, 3, Colossians 1, 16, etc., he thinks that it's implied that it was through this creature, the Son, that God created all other things. And my response to that is, but look at what the text says. John 1, 3 is pretty clear. It says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
So it doesn't just say that without him was not any other thing made. It says without him was not anything that was made, made. So that excludes the son because he, he doesn't belong in that category of the things that were made. And uh, the same thing is also implied in Colossians 1.16, where Paul, he uses different language from John, but he also expands upon what does this term all things mean? In Greek, it's the word tapanta, the all things. And it's really a, a comprehensive term that means the entire created realm. And he fleshes it out and explains what tapanta means and what it includes. He says, Colossians 1.16, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So he fleshes out the all things as being things visible and invisible. That pretty much captures the entire created realm. All things invisible, of course, would include the invisible realm of the angels. So he's covered the bases there. There's nothing left. All created things are included in that phrase, all things. So you can't just say, well, there's an implied other in there as, uh, as my friend Danny tried to do. That was his only response to my argument. And to me, that seemed exegetically questionable and uh, really kind of, I think, ruled out by the explicit statement, both in Colossians 1.16 and, and John 1.3, of the comprehensive nature of the all things. Dr. Irons, I have read some historical Unitarian authors who argue like this, that the standard way for talking about the Genesis creation is to talk about God as the creator of the heavens and the earth. And so then here they would say, uh, he says all things in heaven and earth, and then he mentions basically spiritual powers, but visible and invisible could be like, you know, the human order and also the, uh, the heavenly order of uh, invisible rulers and authorities. So they want to say that this passage has to do with new creation because it's, a, it's the new creation uh, rearranging, remaking of the things in the created order. And then they would say, and notice that all things hold together in him, he's the head of the body, the church. So how would you respond to that type of interpretation? Uh, I don't think that it's referring to new creation, verse 16. Verse 16 is, is talking about the original creation uh, and also verse 17. Now you're right, in verse 18, it moves forward to talking about the new creation. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. But verses 16 and 17 that's referring to the original creation, to Genesis 1. But if you look at 15, he's the firstborn of all creation, and I think we agree that means kind of the inheritor, right? The, mm -hmm. um, the firstborn, the one that we get the lion's share of the inheritance, but he gets the inheritance after his resurrection, exaltation. That could make you think new creation. Well, yeah, that's true. But then you have in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. So I think, I think there's a distinction between the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead. So because of the fact that there is a fall and then there is a plan of redemption, you're right that it turns out because of that, that the way in which Christ comes into his inheritance is through the work of redemption. But in terms of how God originally set things up, in terms of the original plan, he, even prior to any conception of the fall and redemption, he was the firstborn of all creation. He was the heir of all things. 
because he's the one through whom God created all things. Dr. Irons, speaking of famous passages in the Bible, all three authors of this book agree that Jesus is the one portrayed in the vision in Daniel chapter 7, where the one like a son of man comes before God and is given an everlasting kingdom. The other two authors urge that as Jesus, as the son of man, is given dominion, glory, and kingdom by God, this shows that Jesus was not by his nature divine in the way that God is, otherwise he'd already have such things just by his own nature. But you argue that the exaltation of Jesus serves to confirm his deity. Why is that? Before I get to that second part there about, I argue that uh, Jesus's exaltation confirms his deity. Let's just back up a little bit to the argument of my friends, the, the biblical Unitarians, whether they're Socinian or Arian. This is a common argument in Unitarian literature in general, so not just focusing on Daniel 7, but any of the passages that deal with the exaltation of Christ, such as Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth is given unto me, Philippians 2, 9 through 11, all the passages dealing with the exaltation of Christ, one of the arguments that Unitarians would use is to say, if these prerogatives, whether it's dominion, whether it's kingly power, sovereignty, worship, all of these things, if they are given to Jesus after his death and given to him at, upon his resurrection and exaltation, then logically, they say, he could not have had these things before. And so I attempted to respond to this argument by making the following case. So one of the things that I've, I feel, and this is kind of a, an underlying theme, I think, which is the typical evangelical argument that Jesus is God, or the argument that Jesus is properly worshipped, therefore Jesus is God. I think these are true statements, but they have to be understood in a larger Christological framework. And so in my opening essay, right out at the outset, I said, what I'm arguing for here is a three-phase Christology. And to me, that's the bigger conceptual scheme that has to be kept in view as we have this conversation. Because if we don't have this three-phase Christology in view, then we're just going to be looking at little isolated tidbits. And from the side of a Trinitarian, these little isolated tidbits like, well, Jesus is worshipped, they don't really have very much convincing power to them. Or on the other hand, the argument from the Unitarian side of, well, Jesus began to be worshipped or he began to exercise this dominion and authority and kingdom at his exaltation, therefore he didn't have it before, that seems like a convincing argument if you don't take into account this three-phase Christology. So the three-phase Christology that I'm arguing for is very simple. Phase one is his eternal state, the eternal pre-existence of the Son. He is there at creation. He's the one through whom the Father created all things, therefore that puts him on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction, eternal pre-existence and eternity past. Phase two of this Christology is the incarnation, when that eternal pre-existent son 
takes a true human nature into personal union with himself and he becomes a man. He doesn't cease to be the son of God, but he's the son of God in human form. Now that phase two is the first phase of his incarnation from his birth all the way through to his, up until the point of his resurrection. Phase three of this Christology is the exaltation of Christ, which begins in his resurrection and is brought out to public view in his exaltation. And that continues on through to his second coming and then on into eternity. So this three-phase Christology then helps me to answer the Unitarian argument that if he was given sovereignty, then he didn't have it before. And my answer is he's being given it as a man. He's being given it as the incarnate son of God. Yes, he had sovereignty before from eternity past. He was there at creation. He was the one through whom God created all things. So that's sovereignty. But he's given something new because he's given it in the form of a man. And that's what, what Paul says in his wonderful Carmen Christi, the song, the hymn about Christ in Philippians 2. You know, he begins with eternity past, Philippians 2, 6. He was in the form of God, but then he moves down into the incarnation. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, became a man. He humbled himself to the point of death. So that's phase two. And then phase three, verse nine, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name and he receives divine worship. So this three-phase Christology, which is so explicit here in Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is the broader conceptual scheme that helps me to respond to that particular Unitarian argument. Jesus is not being given something he didn't have before, but he's being given it in a new mode, and that is the mode of his incarnate existence. In fact, I would point out an interesting parallel here in in, uh, John chapter 17, which is sometimes referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Jesus himself, again, you see the same three phases here, but Jesus himself asks for something to be given to him that he already had. So he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. And then he goes on, he says, verse four, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, this is the key verse, verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he's saying, I want to be given something that I already had. Sounds like a contradiction at first, but when you realize that he's referring to being given it as a man, as the incarnate son of God, then it makes sense and you understand the logic behind what is being said here. Dr. Irons, when you said that argument, I thought to myself just now, well, that's a non sequitur. If you're given something right now, it doesn't follow that you never had it before because maybe you're being given it because you had it before and then you lost it and now you're being given it again. And so I was kind of expecting that you would say, yeah, but Jesus lost dominion, glory, and kingdom, or he, he gave them up voluntarily, rather, to become incarnate, and then he gets them back. What the Unitarian has to do if they're going to press this argument is fasten on some quality of Jesus that's logically implied by his, by his being divine, something that God couldn't lose. Yeah, he, he has to always have that so he could never get it, so there couldn't be any gap in mm-hmm. his possession. But what I hear you saying now is you're not buying the kenosis theory where he gives up some of his 
what you would think are divine essential qualities or the exercise of them or something. You're saying, no, he has, let's say, dominion and glory all along as God, but then now he gets them as man. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a better approach because I'm not really comfortable with a full-on kenosis theory of saying that he gave up those divine attributes. I don't think that if Jesus really is divine, then he can't give up his divine attributes. It's not possible. Now, you could say he voluntarily chose not to fully exercise some of his divine attributes. Of course, some attributes are are attributes that don't have the ability to be exercised or not. They just are, right? Like eternity or infinity or ontological deity and so on. But there are other attributes like omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence that are more active. And so it is possible to say that in his incarnation, he chose voluntarily to refrain from fully exercising some of those divine attributes. If you're a Trinitarian, you have to be careful because you don't want to end up saying that he gave up his deity. (laughs) Very careful kenosis theorists nowadays, they basically redefine what the divine attributes are. So that, for instance, omniscience is not a divine attribute, but omniscient unless temporarily not omniscient to become incarnate. Something like that weird property that I just said is is what's actually essential to God rather than straight up omniscience. But... Nobody ever said any view like this until the 19th century, so it would be a strange fit with your mm-hmm. your whole approach, I think, to yeah. go in that direction. So that's why I prefer to shy away from this kenosis type of thinking and go with saying that he had divine sovereignty all along. He had all the divine attributes, but he w- receives something new in his exaltation by virtue of the incarnation. So he's receiving them in a new mode as the incarnate son of God. That to me is the is a better way to go. Dr. Irons, it struck me that your view of Jesus is more small-c Catholic than that of many evangelicals in the sense that you employ all the machinery of ancient creedal theorizing about him. For instance, you talk about two natures and even about the communication of idioms, and you emphasize two claims which many Protestants have worried about, namely that the Father eternally generates the Son, and that the Son, like the Father, exists a se, that is, on his own or independently of anything else. Why do you accept these two claims about the Son? I think it's true that, that I have been deeply influenced by the small C Catholic tradition. I've done a lot of reading in the Church Fathers, especially Athanasius and the Cappadocian Fathers. And uh, I would hope that most evangelicals are also warmly supportive of that tradition and don't reject it, although I think it's true that they may not be as familiar with it as they should be. But the Protestant Reformation did not reject 
the first, uh, at least the first four ecumenical councils, Council of Nicaea in 325, Council of Constantinople in 381, the Council of Ephesus in 431, which was against Nestorius, and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And even the two councils after that are possibly even considered to be orthodox within a Protestant framework. So for me, the accepting the you call it the machinery of the creedal theorizing. Uh, that's good. I don't, I don't view that as a problem. I view that as being part of my evangelical and Protestant heritage. I guess what I'm curious about is whether you accept eternal generation and um, the aseity of the Son on scriptural grounds or on just the grounds that they are asserted in one or more creeds. Oh, I, I accept it on, I accept both of those doctrines the eternal generation of the Son, and the aseity of the Son. I, I accept those on biblical grounds. In fact, I have a book chapter that is specifically on the issue of the eternal generation of the Son and giving an exegetical basis for it, based primarily on the word only begotten. Most of the more recent English versions of the Bible, like the New International Version and so on, they tend to shy away from translating the Greek word monogenes as only begotten, and they tend to translate it as one and only or only. But I believe a case can be made on lexical grounds that monogenes should be translated only begotten. And that's not the only basis for the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, but that's a strong exegetical argument for it. That, that word is used a number of times in the Gospel of John, John 3.16, John 1.18, and so, it, it, to me, it's an important thing to, to affirm that the Father eternally generates the Son. Now, of course, you have to understand that. I mean, that's, that language can sound strange at first, but basically it's a metaphor. Human fathers beget human sons. They don't beget antelopes or ducks. They beget humans. So, when a father begets a son, the son is ontologically of the same essence as the father. Now, of course, there are huge differences between human begetting and divine begetting. Human begetting happens in time. There's a point at which the son did not exist, right? It involves a mother. So there, there are all kinds of differences. But then again, that's the way all of our God talk is. God talk is necessarily analogical, using human analogies to understand God, which actually is kind of a backwards way of talking because humans are made in the image of God. So really what we're doing is we're using the human image that God himself created as a way of understanding God because God himself revealed himself that way through creating humans in his own image. So as long as we understand that there's this big difference between divine begetting and human begetting, the fundamental point of the analogy is still valid, which is that the father, when he eternally generates the son, he is communicating the divine essence to the son in a way that brings it about that the Son is everything that the Father is as to essence, and yet is distinct from the Father as a person. You know, it's a profound mystery. We can never fully grasp what that means. But to me, that is really the point at which we can begin to understand how the doctrine of the Trinity can be true. How it can be that there are personal distinctions within the one divine essence. And it's because of this concept of eternal generation. And by the way, it doesn't just apply to the Son. There's also the eternal procession of the Spirit with a debate between the Eastern and the Western tradition on whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father only or from the Father and the Son. 
or possibly with a hybrid view of from the Father through the Son, which is kind of a compromised position that tries to see reconciliation between the East and the West. But setting that aside, the filioque question, uh, the tradition has always emphasized, if you look at Athanasius and the Cappadocian Fathers, even Augustine, who's, you say, oh, he's part of the Western tradition, but even Augustine emphasizes the concept of the eternal generation of the Son and says that the Father is the fountain, the pege in Latin Greek, the, the fountain or the font, the source of the Trinity, and that the Father is the one from whom the Son comes and then the Spirit flows out either from the Father or from the Father and the Son and that this is how we can say that there's only one God and yet that there are personal distinctions within the one God. Now, there are two reasons that I've seen that some Protestants are worried about eternal generation. One is that they're afraid that there isn't really a biblical basis for it, and you've addressed that a little. Um, but another one is that they, they fear that eternal generation is not compatible with the full divinity of the Son, because if full divinity requires aseity, but eternal generation means that the Son exists because of the Father then right. you can't be eternally generated and have aseity. How would you address that kind of worry? Yeah, that's, that's a legitimate concern. My answer to that is partly to appeal to mystery and say that the son is ase, he has aseity, he's from himself, but he has that property of being ase from the father. And of course, that sounds a little bit contradictory at first, but Part of the answer to that then is to say, what does aseity mean? Does it mean that the son has his divine essence from himself apart from the father? No, he has his divine essence from the father. What does aseity mean then? I think it means independence of the creation. So that when we say ase, we're talking about that the, the reality, the truth, that as God, as being, going back to the creator-creature distinction, as the creator, each person of the Trinity is ase, that is, is independent of the creation, so that the creation is dependent upon God, not uh, the other way around. God is not dependent upon the creation. So the, the concept of aseity, I think, is really, it's misused if we introduce it into the personal distinctions within the Godhead to say that, therefore, the Son as a person within the Godhead must be independent of the Father. I don't think that's a valid way of applying the, the doctrine of aseity. So it's independence of anything in creation, but not independence from anything whatever. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that might need, you know, you're a philosopher, so you might need to question that and query that some more, but I think that's the way, that's the way it makes sense to me. Dr. Irons, another place where classical distinctions come into play is in your reply to two of Dr. Smith's objections to Jesus being divine. He objects that in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't know something, namely the day or hour of his return, and also that Jesus dies, but God, he argues, can't be ignorant of anything and can't die. How, in your view, does the two natures theory about Jesus handle objections like that? Yeah, I was a little surprised that Dr. Smith raised that argument. To me, it seemed a little bit simplistic, and maybe maybe he's just not familiar with the tradition that the church has developed on this, going back to, I mentioned the second, um, sorry, the third and the fourth ecumenical councils. 
the Council of Ephesus in 431 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 really gave us the grammar for how we should speak about these things. And the Council of Chalcedon in 451 was heavily influenced by the Tome of Leo. Leo was the Pope of Rome at that time, and he wrote, it's called a Tome, it sounds like it must be a giant volume, but it's not. It's really a relatively brief letter. You could print it out on you know less than 10 pages. And in that Tome, he, he very simply and exegetically just goes through the scriptures and shows that whenever the scriptures affirm something of Jesus that pertains to finitude, to suffering, to change, to um, anything corporeal, that, that's an affirmation that's true of the Son in his human nature. Whenever the scriptures affirm something of Christ that has to do with deity, whether it's you know receiving divine worship, performing miracles, omniscience, all these different things that apply to God, he says that, that the way that we speak of that is to say that this is the Son acting in his divine nature. No one has ever said in, you know, if, if Dr. Smith wants to launch a, an argument against the Trinitarian view of Christ, fine, but, but use an argument that really interacts with how the tradition has spoken of Christ and the Christ, Christological language that, that has been used. Uh, no one has ever said that God died. No one has ever said that the impassable being of God suffered. In fact, in the tradition, that's always been a concern that has caused that, that I mentioned before the term patripassionism. That's always been one of the things that has pushed the tradition to recognize the personal distinctions between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Because it's not the Father who suffered and died. It's the Son who suffered and died. And he suffered and died not in his divine nature, but in his human nature, the human nature that he assumed into personal union with himself. Now, it is true that sometimes you'll find this paradoxical language used. For example, the famous hymn, right? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Mm -hmm. Sometimes paradoxical language like that is found, but it's always understood not to be taken literally, but to be understood as a statement that is true of the Son, not in his divine nature, but in his human nature. And so another example is Acts 20, 28, where it says that, you know, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so that creates this concept of the blood of God. No one in the tradition has ever said that God literally has blood. But we can say that statement because Jesus is God, Jesus has a human nature, and his human nature literally died. That's what blood is. Blood is a metaphor for his death. So that's a legitimate thing to say as long as we don't take it too literally and uh, end up confusing the two natures, the divine and the human nature of Christ. Well, to some of us, the, the two natures reply, it's not clear to us how it really answers the objection. So, I mean, take the case of knowing everything versus not knowing everything. And so the traditional answer is, well, he knows everything as God and he he doesn't know everything as man, mm -hmm. right? But then you say to yourself, well, yeah, but it's not natures that know. It's, it's the man, it's the person that knows or not. So if you know something through your divine nature, it looks like it follows that, well, you know it, the one with the nature. If, you, if you're somewhat ignorant insofar as you're a human, but again, it's, it's the man or the person which is the subject of the ignorance but mm -hmm. then if you accept that, then you just have, he knows everything, but he's also somewhat 
ignorant. So he knows everything and he doesn't know everything. Right. That's what I would say. Both are true. But that's an apparent contradiction, right? To know everything and yet it's not the case that you know everything? Yeah, it does seem like a contradiction, but he knows everything according to his divine nature, but he doesn't know everything according to his human nature. So in his human nature, he fully... This kind of gets back to our kenosis discussion, right? Philippians 2, he emptied himself. And so even though he didn't empty himself of his divine nature, he did empty himself in some way so as to fully enter into the human experience. And as one aspect of that, he is not omniscient. And yet, he still knows everything according to his divine nature. I agree that there does seem to be a tension there, maybe even a paradox, but it's not really a paradox if you maintain this reality of the two natures of Christ and distinguish them and say what he experiences in one nature and what he experiences in the other nature are not the same. I mean, it wasn't the divine nature that died. It was the human nature that died. It wasn't the divine nature that was hungry and that wept and that experienced temptation and all those things. It wasn't the divine nature that was in agony upon the cross. It was the human nature of Christ. It was Christ. It was the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, doing all these things in his human nature. Dr. Irons, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Again, the book is called The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus. If you want to find out more about Dr. Irons, you can visit his website at upper-register.com. I'll have a link to this and to the book at the blog post for this podcast at trinities.org. Today's thinking music has been Let's Just Get Through Christmas by Dr. Turtle. Before I go, I just wanted to send out my thanks to Becky in Ohio for her donation through PayPal. Thank you, Becky. Really appreciate it and look forward to getting some feedback from you sometime. If you'd like to make a one-time donation or a monthly donation, you can do that through PayPal. Just look for the orange buttons next to any post at trinities.org. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.